we're on. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Classroom Critics. As always, I am joined by my two friends, Andrew Martino and Walter Freeman. And we are discussing The Godfather Part 3 tonight. We've, we've done uh, Godfather 1 and 2, so only natural. we want to complete the trilogy and uh, discuss this final installment to uh, The Godfather Saga. Or is it the final installment? We'll, we'll talk about that as well. So, of course, it's directed by Francis Ford Coppola, um, with a you know, co-written screenplay with uh, Mario Puzo, starring Al Pacino, Diane Keaton, Talia Shire, Andy Garcia, Eli Wallach, Joe Montaigne, Bridget Fonda, George Hamilton, and the screen debut of Sofia Coppola, daughter of the director. So, I suggested this film, guys. I, I honestly. Uh, it's a film for me that's had a question mark after it for pretty much my entire film viewing life. And I guess my question to you is this, was this a story that needed to be told? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I want to answer your question with a question. Do you remember what you said the rationale was for choosing this film? Yeah, that's a good point. Refresh my memory. You said, is this film as bad as we remember it? Or something along those lines. Or, or bad you, you, films, you wanted that are to... not as, films that are not as bad as you think they were. Right. I think you wanted to make the argument that this film is not as bad as, as we, we anticipated. Yeah. Or we well, at least for, for that question, it, you know, it's, it's definitely the, it, it's considered to be definitely the, the least successful of the, of the trilogy. Yeah. And honestly, to the point where, some Godfather fans call it downright poor. And mm -hmm. I guess my question is, is it underrated? It would be, would be, I guess, part of my, uh, my question. Um, honestly, I, even seeing it, I just watched it, rewatched it again last night. I, I am still kind of unsure of how I feel about this movie. And I, I, I'm pretty opinionated when it comes to movies. Yeah. I'll, I'll have my mind made up. You know, I, I, you know, I have changed my mind on films after repeated viewings, but I've seen this film dozens of times probably, and to this day, I can't tell you whether or not I love it or hate it. Well, I think there's a standard of which films are judged. In one case, you're judging films against all other films, and in this case, you're judging the Godfather films, which have a standard of quality, I think, on their own, you know, mm -hmm. world building and quality. And so the Godfather 3 may be the worst of the three Godfather films, but it's still better than many films out there. And so I think if you, you know, look at it, in, through the prism of just Godfather films, it comes in third, but that's that's three pretty elite yeah. thoroughbreds there in the in the in the top three. And uh, I think that there are some parts of this film that are, you know, have some maybe some of the best moments in the entire trilogy, and some that are pretty bad. And mm -hmm. so I think, and and then third part, some that are not as bad as people remember them to be. And I'll I'll throw that out there with Sofia Coppola. Um, yeah. So that's my take on it. I, I also recently watched it again this week, and I, I saw it when it came out in the theaters. So if I remember correctly, it came out in 1991, and it came out, I think, on Christmas Day or Thanksgiving, uh, one of those two holidays. So my brother and I actually went to see it in the theater that day. Um, so I saw it on the big screen the first time. We had anticipated, my brother and I grew up watching the Godfather films, loving them. So the, the anticipation was really high. And I think that's part of the problem with this is that the anticipation was so high 
um, that it, you can't live up to that kind of standard that, that Coppola had set. So, you know, th there's this sense of not achieving the, the, the brilliance that the other two films uh, achieved. And there's also the, what, what was happening at the time in, in Francis Ford Coppola's own life. He had just lost his son in a tragic accident. So he's still grieving for his son. And, and I think you can see some of the, I think the problems with the film, they, they rest with Francis Ford Coppola. Um, the, the directors fall all the way from for me. I think the acting is terrible most of the most of the film on everybody. Uh, I think no one really comes out really well in this, and we oh, have sorry. really good actors. And you know, some of the lines are just so forced. I think he was instructing his actors. You know, this is opera, and there's that theme that runs throughout it, and and, and it doesn't. You know, they're overacting. If there was ever a film that was overacted, I think this is one of those particular films. I got a theory. Um, this film of, of all of them was certainly most, uh, was rushed the most. Yeah. I believe this film was conceived and shot and released within a year. If I, 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 think right. I'm, I think I'm pretty correct on that. Yeah. Um, and it's the only, it's the only of the three that doesn't have any source, source material. It's a 100% right. original story. Obviously, the first is based on the book and only a portion of the book. Uh, the second half of the film is based on, um, a lot of it's based on material that's actually in the novel. Yeah. The, uh, the early Vito story is, yeah. you know, much of that is from the novel itself. Uh, but this is 100% an original story from scratch, yeah. co-written with, so I think, I mean, when you're as good as Coppola as a director, I mean, you can roll out of bed and, and direct well. Yeah. But if you're if you're rushed, you know you're certainly not. I mean, the the script for me seems like it's a draft. Yeah. You know, it's one of those scripts when you read, you know, you're you're sort of you see sort of inconsistencies here and there, the continuity, you know, basic you know things that would would have been taken care of if he had more time to write the script. I believe he only had weeks. Yeah. I, I'm I'm kind of going off memory of, of things that I'm. Um, that I've read, but I think he only had weeks to actually write the script and have a, you know, where before he had months and months and actually working from direct source material. So it just makes sense that it would seem disjointed and, and, and rushed. And, but once again, as you said, Andrew, there are things in there that are, are very well done. Yeah. I, for, sorry for me that the, the big, I love it visually. I think it visually at times it's really stunning. Uh, yeah. And for me, the, the highlight is the, the sort of color tone that Coppola uses throughout it. It's, it's almost in a sepia um, sort of color scheme. And, and I think it's, it's quite beautiful. The scenes in Sicily uh, are, are really magnificently shot um, visually. Uh, yes. And for me, th that's the power of, of the film, is to see it on a visual sense. Yeah. I think the, the time frame between Godfather 1 and 2 versus between 2 and 3, in the first two films i think coppola was making a film and in the third are oh, you cutting out walt andrew can you hear him can you hear yeah. him yeah. um yeah in the first two movies he was making a film in the third movie he was making a godfather film and i think he was trying to check off all the boxes sepia tones sudden violence backroom deals shadows weddings opera singers um and, and again, it does, it's still, like you said, Bill, he could roll out of bed and direct a good film. And I found the film compelling and watchable. Mm -hmm. Some parts of it were where you couldn't turn away and other parts were laughable. And, you know, some of those 
um, the helicopter attack. Yeah. Uh, you know, Joey Zaza, you son of a bitch. You're like, we didn't need that line to be uttered by a guy who's literally shot to pieces. Right. Um, <laughs> but here's the part that doesn't it's make my sense. Lucky coat. My, lucky yeah, my lucky coat. My lucky coat, right. <laughs> here's the part that doesn't make sense to me about the film, the, the motivations of the characters. So Michael runs the mafia. And everybody, you know, the thing is, he's trying to go legit and hook up with the Vatican, but the the, the Dons don't want him to because they're making a lot of money off of him, except he had passed leadership to Sonny's illegitimate child, the, the Andy Garcia character, who was going to continue to run it and willingly and happily. So there was no reason to go after Michael because there was no interruption in their income. And so it made no sense for Joey Zaza to wipe out all the Dons and then just get killed himself and that have that be amounting to nothing but a helicopter scene. So that to me, that, that the plot didn't work. The way I, I saw that was that they were all getting a lot of money. If I remember that scene correctly, Corleone passes out the checks and everybody gets a check but Zoe, Joey Zaza. Right, but I mean, and in, in Zaza knew it, so he had time to yeah. arrange a helicopter attack. Yeah, right, his, right. But the guy really behind the scenes is Lucchesi, the guy who gets yeah. killed in the most ridiculous on-screen yeah. death I've ever seen with a pair of eyeglasses. Yeah. But right. um, in the end, it's towards the end that Michael says, they're not letting me out. They, yeah. they, they want the money. And that's like, yeah, they don't need to do that. I mean, yeah. the, the mafia, if anything, avoids the unnecessary violence. Right, right. Which is a weird statement. But. I think it's very interesting that um, this film was actually, in Coppola's mind, supposed to be more of an epilogue. Mm -hmm. In fact, he wanted to title it The Death of Michael Corleone. Yeah, that's right. Uh, because it's very different. It's obviously because we're dealing with a, a protagonist, of Michael Corleone, who is uh, regret, regretful. He's um, ridden with guilt. And, you know, this, the, the arc of him kind of delving deeper into this darkness is over. You know, he's mm -hmm. sort of a broken older man reevaluating his life and just kind of in his own way, trying to redeem himself. So it's a very different story. So I could see why that would make sense to not call it yet another chapter in the saga, but more of a, more of an epilogue. What's funny is that it's in some ways, this movie was kind of a money grab, you know, they, in many different, which I think is one reason why it was um, not as good as it could have been because it was rushed. Number one, they wanted to get it out by Christmas, I believe it was. And, um, and so everything dictated that, you know, uh, you know, then you have instances where the budget for the, um, the cast wasn't where it could have been. So you have people bailing out of the project like Robert Duvall. Right. What a loss. In so, what? Oh, what a loss. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, that could have certainly changed the film. And, and so it's, that's why, I mean, it, it just feels like a, a very different film because of that, because we're not, we're kind of just on, on different territory yet at the same time, it's trying to echo, as you said, Walt, echo some of the old uh, motifs and almost in a, in a self parody kind of way, you know? And so I think that that's what kind of harms it in, in, in a sense. And it's, so I think that that really puts a damper on the movie in, in, in total. So, and I, I don't have any proof for this. Uh, I haven't done any research into this, but I think by this time, Coppola's really done with the studios. Um, if I remember correctly, he only does one more studio film after this, and that's Dracula, I think. Jack. 
Remember Jack? No, I don't even remember. Oh, that's, I do remember now that you mentioned it, yes. Is that Robin uh, Williams? That was Robin Williams. I had oh, forgotten that that was his, yeah. Very bizarre kind of directorial choice by Coppola. <laughs> well, what was the one with Nicolas Cage and Kathleen Turner about the high school reunion? That was Coppola. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm not trying to I can't remember the title, but there, there you go. I mean, yeah. you know, um, so let me ask you guys a question. Um, you know, we said, we've all said there's, there's a lot to love about this film and there's a lot to sort of, you know, as Bill says, oh, it borders on self-parody. <clears throat> what do you think, let's, let's talk about acting for a sec. What do you think, who do you think were the, the best actors in the film and, and who do you think were the worst? And, mm. and, and again, I'm throwing that out there because, of, you know, Sofia Coppola is famously derided for this film. I have my opinions on that, but I wanted to hear what you guys had to say. I think for me, a standout is Andy Garcia. Yeah, I agree. <sighs> totally. I think he plays the role uh, to, to, you know, I think, I think he's very convincing. Mm -hmm. Of course, Al Pacino, uh, he has obviously some incredible moments, but his character is, you know, uh, we can talk about the, the, the writing of his character. I think there's some problems there, but yeah. I think it, it, there's, there's some very compelling scenes. Uh, so yeah, I, I think, I, I think Gar Garcia is, for me is the, is the standout. I would agree with that. Yeah, I think I think Garcia is, is I actually think he's very good in this in this film throughout. Um, I actually think Pacino's really good in this film, with the exception of the scene where his daughter is killed, which I think is completely uh, an awful scene um, by any means. And I also think that Bridget Fonda, for the short time that she's in there, is pretty good uh, in the role that she, that she's that she's been given. Uh -huh. uh, but I, I agree with one hundred percent. I think Andy Garcia's. Uh, portrayal of um, of this character is terrific. Yeah, I'm going to concur on that. Um, the, for me, the the thing that stands out about Pacino's performance, and, and again, echoing what Bill said, not not always well written, but is it such a quiet performance for me? Yeah. And, and if we you know think of modern day Pacino, he's anything but quiet. And it's such a it's a performance almost of stillness. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm going to go to the other end, and I'll totally agree with you on uh, on Andy Garcia. He's a, he, he really has a screen presence. Um, uh, for me, Eli Wallach didn't work. Um, no, I, agree. I think that he, he made it, he, he seems to be making a career of being cast uh, out of his ethnicity, uh, when going back to, uh, um, the good, the bad and the ugly yeah. <laughs> and here and his, uh, death scene, which is meant to be, um, this incredible suspense filled slow burn. I'm thinking to myself, either he's eating way too many cannolis for a man his age, or he's taking way too long to eat a cannoli. <laughs> I mean, those operas are like three and a half hours long. Yeah, and, right. and he's, <laughs> he's on those cannolis through the whole thing. And uh, I, I'm thinking that however many cannolis were in that box, one of them was poisoned. And so the yeah. chance that he was going to consume the entire box during the opera didn't seem realistic. <laughs> um, but I'm going to, uh, you know, Sofia Coppola is, is wooden but not like she doesn't ruin any scene she's in for me but you know the same thing with Pacino her character is supposed to be you know this uh this hot center of of Michael's focus but she's just bland so she's not you know and, and she has a kind of a a sneer on her face through much of the film uh but I again I she's I think she's wrongly panned for being the reason the film wasn't great and I, I think that she was fine in it just not great in it right yeah but i think for the movie to work she that role has to be great that you know yeah. uh yeah, you so, 
you know, put somebody with very little acting experience up against well, Al Pacino, this, Diane King. Right. And this is, this is, I think, that one of the, this goes to your point exactly, Bill, in the film is rushed, right? Because she's not the first choice for that role. It's Wyona Ryder, who was, who was, and then I think Ryder w became ill or something and couldn't do the role or. or exhaustion. She was suffering from exhaxion. And yeah, then right. I think Madonna was at some point um, looked at. And so I, Coppola is known for his bold casting choices and it's usually works for him that, you sure. know, you have uh, roles like um, Tessio. What's, uh, what's Abe the actor? Dave Bogota. Yeah, yeah. He's yeah, he's brilliant in that, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he was, you know, off the street and he, Iconic. Yeah. he always, one thing he does, he has open calls for some, you know, for some parts in all this film, which I think is fantastic. Yeah. And sometimes they end up in there and um, some great discoveries have been made. And I think he was going for this bold choice by having, you know, Sofia Coppola, I think her performance was, was real. It was natural. She seemed very vulnerable, but the camera just doesn't necessarily, um, that's the, that's the, that's what separates like a, a movie star and just someone who can act. You know, it's th th there's just something, some magnetism that certain actors have. Oh, and that, Andy Garcia walks into a scene. You're watching Andy yeah, Garcia, right? Yeah, and I'm not commenting on you know her her physicality, but there was she, had, she the, the role was supposed to be something that really drew Andy Garcia toward her charisma and and. and it, it it doesn't seem like she had that and had enough of that for someone like Andy Garcia's character to sort of risk everything for that. But that's not to say, I mean, obviously um, one can fall in love with anyone, you know, yeah. but I didn't really see that. There is no chemistry there. Really. The chemistry, yeah, definitely. There is no chemistry. And I, 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 watching it this time, this is maybe the fourth time I've seen this film. She is better than, than, you know, she gets better every time I, I see it. I, I, I become more convinced um, with her character. Before I, before I forget, okay, why, why the cousin thing? Is it, okay, well, that seems to be, um, I don't know. That, that irk you as much as it has irked me over the years? What do you mean about the cousin thing? Their cousins. Their first yeah. cousins. Their first cousins. First cousins, right, right. He's the son of the woman in Godfather One that Sonny is playing with at the wedding against the and door. She's in the, that's the same actress in, in the film too, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm just, I don't know, I guess my question is, I mean, that's, I think, a distracting point. <laughs> For me, that was, that was, uh, they do harp on that, I think, too much uh, in the film. Uh, I think that's a part where less could be more. But this is one of those things that I think Coppola is really trying to go for the operatic part, right? So it, it, it's this sort of, it ends, it's supposed to, I should say, it's supposed to lend a more dramatic um, tone to, to Like that. an old world kind of. Right, exactly. And, yeah. and you know, he, he, when they have that scene where, where Michael is talking with, with his daughter, um, with Sofia Coppola and saying, you know, you can't do this. It's just not right. And then his his son, Anthony, says, no, he, dad's right. You know, this is, you know, it's a boundary. I think this film is all about boundaries, in a sense, and, okay. and crossing those particular boundaries. Right. But parallels, too. You know, Michael's literally trying to get in bed with the church, and there's the suggestion that the church and organized crime are, you know, first cousins in some yeah, sense. Yeah, right, well. right, right. That's a good point. Question for you. Okay, so 
I think it's kind of ambiguous. Who knows what in terms of Fredo, uh, the killing of Fredo, Michael's execution of him. And uh, Kay somehow finds out. Yeah. Uh, it's just never, it kind of goes unanswered as to, you know, um, how she found out, but she did. Um, it seems like the story was, the narrative was that he died and, you know, he drowned. He right. fell out fell out of the boat and I guess Michael's bodyguard just let him drown. <laughs> Must have been the story. Um, but it's implied that his sister doesn't know about it, yeah. has been deceived, or what do you think about that? Is Do you think she really doesn't know? Or it's just something that that's, okay, not spoken of or... Um, it's really funny because it comes up in a lot of places in the film, but it never comes up with any of the scenes with, with Connie. You know, as, as far as I remember, it's never mentioned. It's never alluded to. Uh, uh, she does say, um, and he drowned, and that was a terrible thing. That's right. Roswell. That's right. Even the, the daughter out. knows, has heard. Yeah. I'm that's thinking the rumor. That this might be another one of those cases where the, the, the rushing script, because if, if she knows, but she's willfully decided to be in denial about it. That needs to be emphasized more. Yeah. Yeah. And the son knows, um, at least according to, at least according to Kay, uh, during the scene, during, uh, at that party, she says, uh, she says to Michael, Anthony knows about Fredo, you know, cause she's really trying to get, you know, go for the jugular in a couple mm -hmm. of, couple of lines there. So he knows, you know, Anthony knows, but her, his aunt doesn't, you know, it's just, it's, 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 it's you wonder who knows and who doesn't, it kind of goes to show like, okay, so I think, it'll, okay, so if there is that thing in the way, something so awful, you killed my uncle or you killed your brother, that would seem to me that that would be a, a huge obstacle between, you know, in terms of a relationship between Michael and his son. Mm -hmm. Yet that's not really dealt with. They, no. seem, they seem mad at each other at the beginning and then suddenly he becomes an opera singer and then they... He sings them that song, and yeah, he has quite the meteoric rise in his opera career too, going from amateur to starring in an opera. Yeah, in a matter of whatever span of time it is. Well, it's, all I have to say is, you know who my father is. Yeah, yeah. Part. <laughs> his real Susan Alexander moment. <laughs> well, speaking of which, you know, the Johnny Fontaine character was meant to be kind of an allusion to, you know, from the first film to, to Frank Sinatra and Sinatra. Yeah was openly disdainful of the two yeah. Godfather films. He asked to be in this one. Oh, I didn't know that. Is that he right? Did. Yeah, he had changed his tune. And I don't know what he wanted to play, but he was turned down. Because yeah. we have to work Orson Welles into every single episode. He wanted to be, he said he would have sold his soul to be Don Corleone. In yeah, Godfather. that's right. Yeah. So How do this, you week's, this week's Godfather reference is uh, brought to you by Paul Maison Wine. <laughs> I, I love the Johnny Fontaine character, and it's probably because, you know, obviously we share the same last name, you know, uh, Al Martino and, and Andrew Martino, and I, I, I've got to give him credit for that. <laughs> Very nice. His performance was much better in Godfather 3 than Godfather 1. Yeah, although he's still that sort of sniveling, you know, begging for, for Michael's attention. That's true, that's true. Um, okay, so let's talk about the, okay, so I like, one thing I do like about this film is that it, okay, if you notice every story, every Godfather saga, okay, so in Godfather 1, the crime and the story sort of revolves around power that's sort of located almost exclusively in, the, in, in New York, right? Mm -hmm. 
Godfather 2 expands itself. So instead of just, you know, local New York politicians and senators from now we're talking about, okay, now we're, the calling on power is influencing Washington and, and, you know, kind of the, the halls of government and, and not just local, locally. In the Godfather Three, you know, now it's okay. What's what kind of power is even above that? You know, so he kind of goes into the Vatican. So I think it's really kind of neat that global. Yeah, he's global now, and even, I mean, his his wealth is immense. I mean, he makes a one hundred million dollar donation, right, in order to get that um, that award. Yeah. I just I found that kind of an interesting continuation of events. Were you going to say something while you look, I, I stopped because it looked like you were about to say something. No, I, I'm still thinking about the cannoli Eli Wallach was eating. You, you had to eat the entire cannoli for the poison to work. That was a dramatic impetus of that scene. What if he dropped that last bite? That's where the film falls apart for. Sorry. I am sorry. The cannoli took you me right out. thinking about it. Yeah. You're asking well, a really cannoli, intelligent question. Cannoli Bill. is a product, right? And the product is poison. So this is how I'm going to, you know, in a bullshit way, bring it back to globalism and, and everything becomes for sale. And, and Michael sold his soul a long time ago, and now he's trying to buy it back uh, in a way. And, and it's, I, I don't think it's, it's all about money for him. I think he likes being in, in, in the church and seen as that kind of um, benevolent figure. Kay actually calls him out on that in, in at least one occasion in this film. Yeah. And, no. And I, what I do like about the film, and you alluded to it, Bill, is I think that Coppola is really pointing a finger at the Catholic Church um, and the corruption that's that's in the Catholic Church, particularly at this time in, in the in the late 1970s. Uh, yeah. and some of the things that are going on. Well, coincides you know, nicely with the uh, the death of uh, Pope Pope John Paul I. Right. Right. Um, so it's kind of like historical fiction in that sense. Yeah. But how fictitious? I guess we'll, we don't know. <laughs> right. Right. One of my favorite uh, parts of the film, you know, Michael confesses his crimes, like flat out all of them to a very shocked priest. Yeah. But it doesn't bring him the forgiveness that he wanted and the peace. And, you know, which implies, of course, that the what, they could laud whatever they want on him, whether it's a medal or all the money. And he's never he's never going to atone for killing Fredo or, or the other people. Yeah, I like that confession scene where, yeah, he, he's being coaxed into this confession and the priest is all warm to him it's like you know confess my son confess and he finally confesses and uh, the cardinal's kind of like oh yeah crap <laughs> his, face, his face changes yeah, yeah you're right the you're manual doesn't say anything about this right <laughs> and you know, it, it's but that that was there from the very beginning um you know the, the very last scene in the film uh when when michael is an old man and and dies alone you know, it, it sort of mirrors the ending of Godfather 2. This is a guy who's completely alienated himself, or perhaps better is, is his power has alienated himself. He's built a wall around himself, um, right. all in the name of trying to protect his family at, a, at all costs, wow. um, which completely does the opposite of really what he's, what he's trying to do. Michael is, if anything, he's the reluctant protagonist, right? In the sense that he reluctantly joins in with the family business. He doesn't want to do it. This is a guy who, who his whole narrative is, I've done things that I've been thrown into, that it's, it's been out of my control. Right, right. Well, All right, so, go ahead, Walt. I'm sorry. Did you find, though, that the jump between the, the death of his daughter and then him as an old man alone was just way too abrupt? Sure. Um, and, you know, at some point in the interim, I wanted to see... It, 
you're Italian. You guys are Italian. When you turn 60 as, as an Italian, do you get one of those hats almost immediately? <laughs> um, is that Mine's already. I'll let you know in nine years. <laughs> <laughs> but I just felt that was too much. Like there's there, that, that ending scene had some power to it for yeah. the reasons you stated, Andrew. And then the, the scene of the death of his daughter. But I think there should have been some bridge in there. I, I, what I liked about that scene, you're right. I, I agree with you 100%. It's much too abrupt. And, and this, is, this goes back to something that, Bill, you alluded to at the very beginning. Is this really the final Godfather? There's a whole bunch of time between the death of, of um, the daughter and, and that final scene that is unaccounted for. Yeah. So what I like about it is if you notice how he's dressed, it's very similar to the way Brando's dressed when, when he dies um, you know, with, with actually his grandson, Michael's son. So there are similarities there about how men in power um, end up dying alone. I, I don't know. It's almost Shakespearean for me in, in that sense. And I'm, by, by Shakespeare, I mean the history plays maybe more so than, than, the, um, than the tragedies, the sense of responsibility. And you know, with Shakespeare in the history plays, if the king is sick, then the, the land is sick and vice versa. So there is that play, I think that's at work here. I think um, Vito's death was a bit more noble in that he was- I agree. He, he died with his grandson present. He was surrounded by family who mourned him. Yeah. Uh, grand funeral. Um, and then you have Michael falling over and he fell over in the dirt um, and uh, with the dog, you know, yeah. you know, um, getting sniffed by a, a dog. And I think what one thing is really cool was the little flashback beforehand. You know, you have um, him flashing back to his dancing. Yeah. It, what's interesting is like whenever he, when his mind wanders, it wanders back to Sicily and his first wife, mm -hmm. Apollonia. It happens twice in the movie it happens when, uh, Again, when Anthony is um, playing that song yeah. for him, he drifts back in his mind and he sees himself with Apollonia. And um, he does the same thing as he's sitting in his chair. Am I right about that? He, that little flashback at the end as well. So what do you think that says? I mean, is that, is that sort of the last time he was happy? Could that, you know, I, th I think in our minds, sometimes we say it, we say it to ourselves and Again, it's it's kind of like a human condition. I think you always one always says, you know, I was ha I was happier before. I was happier when I was this way when I was with this person. Um, and I, I mean, that might be might be the case here. That's the last time he felt like his life was where he wanted it to be, or at least going in the direction. And, and of course, she was taken away from him. Right, and it it goes back to you know the the sense. What I really like about the dancing scene, it's, they're all, it's a waltz, right? So he's always waltzing, whether it's with his wife. He might be slow dancing with Kay in, in Godfather too, but there is that sense of a waltz, you know, that, and I think that rhythm is very much, he's out of step in his present life with the rhythm that he's trying to get to. Yep. Uh, so I think you're absolutely right. He's not happy in the present tense, but this is only somebody who can be happy perhaps in the past that never really existed. That's true. Good point. Good point. Do you think he's, is he still a profiteer in Godfather 3? Or do you think, is, is he more obsessed with his redemption and, and making things right? Uh, or is he still kind of like who he's always been in a way where power is still something that he can't let go of? I mean, he's still trying to cut deals with the Vatican. I mean, he's, yeah. he, gets, he gets his award, his award right? But 
are we to think again this might be a, another flaw in the script but are we are we to think that that award wasn't just for some sort of redemption or i think but it was to get in the door with with the church i mean is it true that you know a leopard can't change his, his spots and that he's he's still the same michael corleone and in, in large part i think that 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 award is is getting him in the door to immobilari right it's that business conglomerate that he'll be able to control. And, and the, for me, this is really a key to understanding all three films. If we go back to Godfather 1, the very first line, if I'm not mistaken, is, I believe in America. This is a country you can come to and forget about everything, right? It's the only country you can get a second chance, regardless of how bad or evil you were in a past life. You can remake yourself. Um, and that's part of the myth of America. So the Corleone family is really about the myth of America, it seems to me. And it's much more about the American dream than it is about the old world kind of, of mafia. Sorry, Walt. No, no, you're, I, was just, I was just sort of echoing what you're saying. I mean, there's a scene in three where he takes Kay in Sicily to the door of the house where his father yeah, was born. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, I think you made a, make a compelling point there. And, and everything is about a vendetta, right? So we have to go back to the past in order to, to fix it. For me, it's, it's that kind of old science fiction time travel question, right? If you could go back in time and kill, say, Hitler, would you do it, you know? And, and this, this is exactly the sort of premise of a lot of these moments, um, yeah. all the way from Godfather 1, all the way up to Godfather 3, that they go back in time and, and somehow they, they try to, by killing those particular people, they can change the future or change the present, which obviously we see that that is a failure. Yeah. I also think it's very interesting how Michael slips back into his vicious persona yeah. very easily. Very easily, right. Uh, so for example, when, you know, during that meeting at the, uh, at the party at the beginning with um, Joey Zaza, he comes in and uh, Andy Garcia's character tells Michael that he goes around the city saying F Michael Corleone, F Michael Corleone. How does Michael react to it? He's doesn't just brush it off. He basically goes to him and says, he threatens him. I mean, he, yeah. he, he threatens him in a very clever way, basically saying, you know, if someone says actually does say this, they'd be a dog. Correct. And gets him to agree. So I think he could slip very back, very quickly back into the old Michael rather, rather easily, regardless of how mellowed out or, Mm -hmm. broken he is and he looks yeah he, well you mentioned earlier he does he, there's a silent power there to him he looks like a broken man like the weight of the world is on his shoulder we gotta remember this is this is you know an earlier al pacino he's he's not an old man yet in this movie he's no right he's he's not the hoorah al pacino quite yet <laughs> he's but they um i think obviously the makeup and the the, the graying of the hair was was a nice touch and just the way he carried himself. By the way, what do you think was the reasoning behind giving him that haircut? <laughs> <laughs> That's a directorial choice I wanna I wanna discuss here. Late eighties, he should have popped a collar on his polo shirt with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well seventy nine, right? It takes place. Seventy nine, yeah. Nineteen seventy nine. Yeah, seventy nine and ninety seven I think is the scope of the film. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you're right. And and I don't know about the haircut. You know, it's it's uh, it's uh, probably it's Pacino's sort of method acting, uh, trying to get into a certain kind of character. But it certainly goes against the grain from the uh, quote unquote olive oil haired uh, Don that we see in, in Godfather Part Two. I think they want to um, 
I heard Coppola in an interview say that he wanted to give him a, um, you know, kind of like that quasi, um, crew, not Kruka, but, you know, kind of like, I, I, my Italian uncles all kind of had that, that kind of squared haircut in their older years, you know, and kind of like um, that wiry graying kind of hair. So, yeah. so, I, although I wish that, I wish it went a little bit longer and parted. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it strikes me, um, you know, Michael dies in the garden with the little puppy all alone. Uh, Don Vito dies in the, amongst his tomatoes. He's with his grandson. I assume that's Anthony. Yeah. Um, but Don Vito never dwelled on his sins. Um, Michael was obsessed with his sins. And of course, Don Vito never murdered his own brother, but uh, mm. or ordered the murder of his own brother. But it just seems to me there's a fundamental difference between uh, him and his father because you know, he was, Michael was reluctant to join the family business. And then once he was in, the gloves are off. He's kind of like a, you know, I like what you said, Andrew, a Shakespearean figure. And he yeah. becomes like Macbeth, whereas once you're steeped in sin, you just right. keep wading further in. Um, Don Vito was not troubled with that conscience. He had a strong sense of family and a strong sense of success, not a strong sense of his own immortal soul, I don't think. Yeah, and in one of the final scenes in Godfather 1, he's talking to Michael in the garden. He tells him, he says, you know, I don't apologize Yeah, because I took care of my family. And it's the whole idea of you have a choice when you're uh, an immigrant family like we are. You are either on the end of the strings or you, um, you work your way up in demand to control the strings, hence the uh, puppeteer logo. And so, yeah, I don't think he – I think his regret – I think he is weary in the final scene there – but I think it's because he has foresight to know that he didn't leave things how he wanted to leave them with, especially Michael. And obviously that proved to be true. He even says in that scene, you know, I was hoping by the time it was where you were of age, you could be something legitimate, like, right. a, like a senator or a governor, but there wasn't enough time for that. Right. And I think he says specifically, I never wanted this for you. Yeah. The hopes of, of getting the family into a kind of legitimacy rested with, with Michael. Maybe, which is, you know, obviously, not maybe, it's obviously Michael's motivation, or at least partially his motivation to go to bring the Corleone family to a legitimacy. Yeah, and I think Don, Vito was, the implication there is that he was not necessarily happy in the life that he, that he chose, but he did it out of necessity. And it's almost like Michael embraced it. Yeah. You know, that's, that's the difference. He, I mean, Michael could have went legitimate right away. Um, and he kept saying in five years will be legitimate. Five years will be, and that, that doesn't ever happen. Takes us all the way to Godfather 3 for him to even really kind of almost be there. And just when he thought he was out, yeah. they pulled him back in. I'm glad you mentioned that because I wanted to talk about iconic um, uh, phrases uh, in this particular movie. So obviously that's the one, right? And for, for all of the panning that Godfather 3 has suffered from, that, that is a line that, that still sticks out. It's, it's almost as, as famous as, you know, uh, leave the gun, take the cannoli. Yep. And, and, and that, you know, if not for anything, then that line is, is something that we'll always um, remember. Yeah, that's, that's the, when you, if you watch The Sopranos, that's the, yeah. that's the line that uh, Sill, the yeah. constabulary, Tony Sopranos, Consigliere is always quoting. Yep. 
he's he's supposed to be in everyone you know in that show when everyone wants to get a, a laugh they tell Sil to do a a Michael Coleone impression which is a bad impression it's just him in his own voice just saying that line <laughs> but uh yeah that's definitely that's that's a, a famous one-liner I would say even it's one of those lines where I think if you've you know I think Hollywood history is filled with such lines sure. you don't necessarily ha- have to have seen the movie to to have heard it right in fact when I show my students Casablanca I mean that movie's filled with them it's like oh it comes from that yeah right right I can't think of any others can you from uh, Godfather 3 a three. I, I can think of obviously from one. There was so many. You know, made him an offer he can't refuse. Yeah, and, and what have you. Uh, what about two? Were there iconic lines uh, from two? It's nothing personal. It's it's business. That's keep, from two. I think. Keep your friends close. Keep your enemies closer. Yeah, is part two. Um, and of course, Fe- Fredo's famous line: "I'm not dumb. I'm smart." no you're dumb Fredo sorry (laughs) my favorite line I have to tell you because I've said this you know this whole sort of bringing the iconic lines is just to set up one of my favorite scenes and that's right after um the the, um uh Andy Garcia's character kills the two intruders in his apartment so he's back at Michael's apartment that night and and um you know Connie's defending him saying he needs your support on this or something to that effect and he goes, okay, you know, we'll do it. And then uh, Connie says very coldly, right? Now they'll fear you. And this is my favorite part. When Pacino looks at her in kind of deadpans, maybe they should fear you. <laughs> <laughs> kind of just sort of one off. But I think Pacino delivers it in such a way that for me, um, that's a line that I've always remembered. I've just never thought 91. They should fear you. I also love the line where Pacino, he's scolding them for executing Joey Zaza. And uh, he says, what is it? He says, don't ever give an order. Yeah. Uh, and then he goes on to say, um, it's not what I wanted. And he, he freaks out. And it's, a, it's one of those cases where he, he screams and he immediately is like, all right, I'm, yeah. I'm going a little too far here. You know? And he sort of accepts it. He's like, all right, well, that, you know, that, that it is what it is, I guess. And then he moves on to the next thing. My favorite line is not a line. What is it's, it? a, it's a look. Um, so early in the film, uh, Andy Garcia bites off Joey Zaza's ear. And then later in the opera, he's sitting in the booth watching the opera and the character Anthony on stage bites off the town mayor's ear. <laughs> and right. Anthony Garcia, he gives this chuckle and then he looks like he wants to tell someone like, hey, I did that, but there's no one there. And he just kind of looks back and it's just, it's a funny second if you have a chance to <laughs> look at that again. He's like, I, I did that. <laughs> that's, that's a good one. I, I uh, definitely, that's, that's, all right, here's another question for you. Um, is it actually physically impossible to kill someone with a pair of glasses? <laughs> In that amount of time, which if we watch the scene very carefully, I think he's actually shot before the, the eyeglass uh, goes into his into his. Worst neck. bodyguard ever. Um, shot? No. I, I oh, you think the guy pulled out his gun for, to shoot the, 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 shoot the bodyguard. Yeah, that, yeah. So, okay, so, yeah, you, you would think that, all right, so this guy is supposed to be the most powerful guy in the movie. The only, the only character in the film who has the clout and the power to stand up to Michael Corleone. Yeah. Yet he has the worst bodyguard ever uh, who cannot stop someone from taking off his patron's glasses stabbing him in the jugular. I, I, yeah. I think it's a, 
What's that? A giant pen. A giant sharp pen sitting on the desk between him and the guy before it. And I kept thinking to myself, that's a bad place for a pen like that. Right. You don't want to be killed. And <laughs> right. The glasses. <laughs> very, glasses. Very dangerous horn rim. So, Andrew, watch out with those glasses. I, I know, yeah. Um. <laughs> but I'll, I'll tell you what, though. Okay. Um, I, I think, I mean, Coppola, again, he's famous for unique ways to kill people off mm-hmm. you know there's so many like interesting little details in all his films you know like from mo green getting shot in his eye you know his glasses um you know you have the the, the sort of interesting makeshift silencer thing that uh de niro uses and godfather yep. 2 to kill um yeah. uh, what's his face finucci Panucci, yeah. yeah. So the whole saga is filled with this, I think, very unique, memorable. I mean, because if you're going to kill someone off a character in the movie, try to do it in a, in a unique way. It just adds flavor and character. And so I think he just went a little bit too far with this one. Yeah, it didn't work for me. It didn't it didn't play? I guess as, as, well, stabbed yeah. with a rolled up dollar bill or something. Else. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're going to kill you with your travel mug. And I forgot who it is who's who's killed. I think it's it's the Swiss banker. Um, when he's lying down uh, on on the cot and the rosary beads falls on his face. And then I think the next scene after that, we see him hanging from the bridge. I thought that was well done. You know, that that was the timing of those particular shots worked for me. Yeah, that's always a sort of the signature where there's the purge. Right, right. Going on. So, um, so I have a question if, uh, if, if you're ready for another, the next topic. So first of all, I think there should be a law in Hollywood. Or there should have been a law in Hollywood that if Robert Duvall wants to be in your movie, pay him anything. Yeah. He, <laughs> he is such a tremendous actor. And so they replace him with George Hamilton and then alluding that he died and John Savage is playing his son. Yeah. But what strikes me is, okay, you know, George Hamilton has, I guess, an interesting face, but he's so wooden. And there's a scene where he's delivering some exposition, but he's shot kind of in shadow. And it took me the entire scene to figure out who was talking. And, and that's how little personality his character has. And I thought to myself, there's no way you, you could shoot Robert Duvall in a dark room and you would know yeah. it's Robert Duvall or in this case, Tom Hagen. And, and I just thought to myself, you could not have gone farther afield to replace that character who's so powerful and has such a presence with George Hamilton. Yeah. Yep. It wouldn't be the first time that, you know, a very important actor has bailed out of The Godfather. Um, you know, you have, um, what's his face, uh, who played Clemenza. He was oh, spo- yeah, I don't remember his name, but yeah. Yeah, he was supposed to be, he was supposed to be the Frank Pentangeli character in uh, Godfather 2. And uh, he had a strange request of demand in his contract. He wanted to be able to rewrite his lines. Mm. <laughs> Uh, which is absurd because he, he improvised, take the gun, uh, leave the gun, take the cannoli. Yeah. So I guess he fancied himself as a, uh, a screenwriter. A, right? a screenwriter so. <laughs> but yeah, I've heard Duvall comments on not being in Godfather 3 and he felt that, he basically said, he said, I, I was fully aware when they were putting together this movie that it was a money grab for everyone. Yeah. Um, I think Coppola was going bankrupt left and right during this time. Uh, you have Paramount Studios, they, need, they needed the money as well. And he says, if it was a cash grab for everyone, you know, I certainly wanted my, what I thought was my share. Yeah. And but by this time, Robert Duvall was 
in a different class than he was during Godfather. I mean, even during Godfather one and two, he was still, you know, uh, certainly a well-respected actor, but now we're talking about Academy Awards, right? Right, right. By this, by this time. And yeah. Tender Mercies, I think. Yep. Great, Great Santini. Santini. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And he, he direct, he was a director by this point. So yeah, they just, they couldn't get it together and you just wonder, I mean, what, what could have been. And then, but the, the part that, that rubs me the wrong way is how um, quick Robert Duvall is to pan this film now. Um, <laughs> Does he pan it? He's been, he's not been shy about saying that it never should have been made. It's just a bad film. And even though that may be true, I, I, you know, again, I wish he'd sort of toned down those. <laughs> Would have been better with him in it. I, Absolutely. You talk about lines in, in yeah. the first Godfather. I admire your pictures. And he's yeah. saying this to the guy, knowing that they're going to cut that horse head off. And doing it in the way that he does, right? Again, it's it's phenomenal. I would think that they would have written, they would have written the character differently or featured the character more. Yeah, Robert Duvall was going to be in it, so I think they oh, would. Yeah, and would he have had some influence over um, Andy Garcia? Would he have right. had some, you know, some better guidance for Michael to ease him in? I mean, George George Hamilton really just his character. Yeah. Didn't I, I think he, he George Hamilton for me plays a very fine character, but he doesn't. He's not. He's forgettable. That's the problem. That that was my point with the thing yeah. in silhouette. Like, who's talking? Who's talking? Right. Oh, that's that's the lawyer guy. Yeah. Um, not so I think the idea is that when you know the more powerful you get, your caliber of lawyers lawyer changes. Yeah. So I, I think he does come off as like that high, uh, you know, I don't know how you'd put it, but just top shelf kind of lawyer <laughs> type. So I think he does have that. But yeah, I think it would have been far more interesting to have. And I do think that the film loses a lot having that dynamic, not just of Robert Duvall the, the actor, but the whole character of Tom Hagen and how Tom Hagen came into that family and was adopted into that family and the influence that he had all of that is kind of lost yeah John Savage plays his son who's a priest who then ends up in the Vatican and then he's sitting in the booth with Michael at the opera and then okay and John uh, Savage is a very fine actor and not given nearly enough lines in this film he could you know they should have given a little bit more so I don't know what ended up on the cutting room floor but he, I would have liked to have seen this character fleshed out a little bit more. I'll tell you though, you know that you've, you're living in the age of quarantine when uh, two things I, when watching this film, I really longed for was um, every year I managed to go to whatever Italian festival uh, yeah. saint, of, the, of, of whatever saint, <laughs> you know, and so seeing that scene, I said to myself, look at all those people crammed together. I don't think that's happening this year. <laughs> um, and then obviously the opera, you know, just being yeah. in an audience, I don't care. I'd, I'd go see um, Phantom of the Opera 2. You know, <laughs> I don't care. I don't care. That's the butthole version. <laughs> I draw the line there. <laughs> you, you know what else I think didn't do this film any favors? Correct me if I'm wrong here, but doesn't it come out the exact same year as Goodfellas? 1990, I believe you're right. Maybe, yeah. Or, or within a close enough span. Yeah, you can't compare the two. Yeah. Goodfellas yeah. is such a, a ball of energy. Yep. Um, and, and this film was, you know, again, it, by nature is more of a contemplative film, but still I just, uh, this film to me was a lot of lost opportunities. You know? Yeah. A lot, a lot of better actors could have been in some places, yeah. a better script and still manages, Coppola still manages to pull off a very watchable and compelling yeah. film. Absolutely. Yeah. And my, actually my wife, Maria, we were watching it last night and, uh, 
I don't know if she's ever seen it from start to finish or it's been a long time. And she, she turned to me and asked, is, does this, does this have the same director mm. as Godfather one and two? That's interesting. You know, and I said, eh, believe it or not, it does. And she says, it just, she says it just doesn't seem the same. So something didn't resonate with her. Um, she felt that a lot of the acting was sort of uh, melodramatic or unconvincing. Yeah, it was. I think Did, um, yep. you mentioned Puzo and, and Coppola, you know, hashed out the script in relatively short period of time. Did Puzo have anything to do with the scripts for one and two? Because I know he wrote the novel. Yeah. And, and if you've ever read the novels, they're, they're not great. They're not, it's not a great novel. No. Um, the film is one of the few instances where the film is better than the book. Right. I agree. But was he on screen screenwriting? It's my understanding he was co-screenwriter for those. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So he for was. one and two as well? Yeah, yeah he was. Uh, okay. All right. He, I'm not sure how much he had to do with two. I, I, think, he, I think he did, actually he did. Yeah. But I think the original story from part two was pretty much Coppola, the whole Michael story. Um, but yeah, yeah, he was definitely involved in all of them. Okay. Interestingly enough, one of, the, um, one of the scenarios they considered for three was having Michael in a mental institution and, 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 and you know, filming it from that perspective and, and hmm. seeing what would happen there. Really? Wow. Interesting. And then I heard at one point there was some arguments and, and Coppola threatened to, to, I will begin the film with Michael Corleone's funeral and we'll go from there. So, you know, <laughs> as far as saying I don't need Pacino, which would have been obviously catastrophic. Oh yeah, but I do would like to see a film that, that shows us a little more about Andy Garcia's character in the wake of, you know, Michael, you would assume he's incapacitated by the death of his daughter. Um, there are some other Godfather scripts that exist. And I do believe that there's a Godfather four. And uh, I, I'm sure there's, there's a couple floating around, but I, I, I have heard in interviews that De Niro or, or some other actors have seen it. And I'm just kind of, we're trying to recollect here, but I think one one of the versions, or at least one script, has uh, Andy Garcia's story, what he does after this, what he does after Godfather Three, and I think I heard that there's there's another script, or maybe it's actually part of the script where it kind of goes back and forth, like Godfather Two, where uh, the story of the gold, the Colium Golden Years are told, which are which are the years between um, the Vito story of Godfather Two in the beginning of Godfather one. Hmm. Um, if you, if you kind of remember Godfather one sort of is the beginning of the end kind yeah. of thing. But before that you, you have a whole, you have a couple of decades of prosperity. And so I don't know. Um, I'm not going to lie. If, if they decide to make another, I certainly would go see it. And um, I would hope that Disney has nothing to do with it. Yeah. <laughs> the musical. <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, there's the the, the the intellectual property that's being used and, and kind of rehashed and in so many different ways is. I mean, I'm just I'm actually surprised that this hasn't been. Yeah, I'm sure it's been discussed. I'm sure it's out there, and who knows what's in development. I mean, you hear things of like Back to the Future being rehashed. Uh, you know, obviously we have Star Wars in every iteration happening. Um, you, you just wonder what, what could happen, you know? Well, they better hurry up if they're going to use Pacino because he's not getting any younger. 
<laughs> just turned 80 years old, so I was just looking it up. Oh, uh, you know, April 25th, he turned 80, so. Yeah, well, I think his character's dead by 80, right? So His time is done in the, in the story anyway, I think, if yeah. they were to follow it up. Or they could use the same technology that they used in The Irishman. <laughs> One never knows. All right, guys. I think uh, I, I, I feel good of get, you know, getting it off our chest. Uh, so I don't know. Let, let's, let's try to come up with a verdict here. Is the film underrated? Or do you think it receives proper criticism by most people who believe that it was a failed opportunity. Mm. <laughs> I'm going to say it's, I'm going to, I'm going to go on record here by saying that I, although it is a very flawed film, I think it's underrated by most fans of the Godfather saga. Simply because as you pointed out earlier, Walt, I think you're trying to compare it with literally the greatest films ever. Yeah. You know, by many people's standards. So if, Godfather 1, Part 2 are A pluses. Godfather 3 is a B. <laughs> and I, I think that, you know, it's a film that you can watch with reverence for all that Francis Ford Coppola achieved with his world building, but also some justifiable, uh, and derision is too strong of a word, but, but you know, some scenes are bad, and uh, you just can't deny it. But it is definitely not as bad as people seem to remember and it's definitely worth a revisit yep yep yeah i would agree i i if you know classroom critics i suppose the grading scale is is appropriate i think i'd give <laughs> i think i'd give it a c plus that it, it it strives to be something that just doesn't quite get there approaching proficiency <laughs> approaching proficiency on our yeah on our rubric <laughs> god forbid all right, guys, thank you very much for uh, indulging me by uh, taking on this film this week. I, I enjoyed it. And, uh, thank you. So we've completed the trilogy. Yeah. And I um, want to thank everyone for joining us this evening. Uh, we hope that you will go on to our Facebook page and join the discussion and rate us on iTunes. And uh, until next week, this is the Classroom Critics. Thank you, Andy. Thank you, Walt. Thank you. We'll see you next time. And we're signing off because it's time to get a cannoli. All right. Good night, but not for cannolis. <laughs>